Hi, friends. Thank you for tuning in to the City Church Lenten podcast series we are calling Again and Again, God's Sacred Refrain. During this series, we will emphasize the God who meets us, comes to us, never gives up on us, and is for us again and again. During Lent, we are also being invited into the spiritual practice of walking with Jonathan Stahls of Intrinsic Paths. Each week, Jonathan will be sharing a podcast, video, and list of resources to help you on your journey of walking through Lent. You can find out more at citychurchsf.org walking. Again, thank you for listening to this series. And if you would like to support the work of City Church, you can do so by visiting our website at citychurchsf.org give. Finally, we would love to see you at our weekly live stream service at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, or Twitch. Grace and peace to you in this season of Lent. The scripture reading today is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19, verses 29 through 44. When Jesus had come near Bethphage and Bethany, at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find tied there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? Just say this, The Lord needs it. So those who were sent departed and found it as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? They said, The Lord needs it. Then they brought it to Jesus, and after throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. As he rode along, people kept spreading their cloaks on the road. As he was now approaching the path down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the deeds of power that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, order your disciples to stop. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the stones would shout out. As he came near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, If you, even you, had only recognized on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Indeed, the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up ramparts around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. They will crush you to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave within you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation from God. The Word of the Lord. Good morning, City Church. It's so good to be with you this morning. And today I'm going to start off this sermon in a pretty unusual way, even for me. I'm going to both begin and end this sermon with a poem. One of my favorites by Rilke, one I've pondered a great deal lately. But my goal today is that we might enter the story of Jesus approaching Jerusalem. Jesus, in fact, approaching a great and tumultuous storm that's waiting for him in that city and feel, like really feel at least a bit of what he felt. To see God in the storm and to see a path of peace and growth that Jerusalem could not see on that day. This is called the beholder. 
I can tell by the way the trees be after so many dull days on my worried window panes that a storm is coming. And I hear the far off field say things I can't bear without a friend. I can't love without a sister. The storm, the shifter of shapes drives on across the woods and across time. And the world looks as if it had no age. The landscape, like a line in the psalm book, is seriousness and weight and eternity. What we choose to fight is so tiny. What fights with us is so great. If only we would let ourselves be dominated as things do by some immense storm, we would become strong too and not need names. When we win, it's with small things. And the triumph itself makes us small. What is extraordinary and eternal does not want to be bent by us. I mean the angel who appeared to the wrestlers of the Old Testament. When the wrestler's sinews grew long like metal strings, the angel felt them under its fingers like chords of deep music. Whoever was beaten by the angel, who often simply declined the fight, went away proud and strengthened and great from that harsh hand that needed him as if to change his shape. Winning does not tempt that person. This is how they grow, by being defeated decisively by constantly greater beings. We'll see the themes of this poem throughout our story today, but for now, I just want us to see this storm the great shapeshifter, as Rilke calls it. In German, it's actually the Umgestalter, which is an amazing word. It means the great renovator. God is in that storm. And the trees and the landscape and all nature move with the storm, while we as human beings are so prone to resist and fight back, to, to uh, pick small battles, and to become small in the process and obsessed with our names. The counterintuitive path of growth, Rilke says, is to be defeated, defeated decisively by constantly greater beings. We'll see all this today. Here Jesus is headed toward Jerusalem and straight into this storm. It's a storm that's been a long time coming. It's spiritual, it's social, it's political, and it's one of the few times we see Jesus weeping, actually weeping over Jerusalem, a city whose name means city of peace, but it was actually a city of great spiritual, social, and political violence. And in this story, the timing is very important because it's the Passover. It's the great annual celebration of God freeing Israel from bondage in Egypt, the annual reminder that God is always waiting to set people free from tyranny and oppression and to create new things, new things out of hopeless situations. And Jesus and his disciples and about 200,000 other people are headed to Jerusalem to pack the city to the brim for this great annual celebration. Now, at this point, Jesus and his disciples have been walking for three years. They've been walking on foot for three years all over Judea and Galilee, teaching on the new kingdom of peace, 
healing physical and psychological maladies. And Jesus was becoming super famous in this process. But then a half mile outside of town, just a half mile outside of Jerusalem, after walking for three years, Jesus stops walking. And he pulls two of his disciples aside. And I'm just going to say to me, they're two very unlucky disciples that day. And he basically says to them, look, okay, here's the deal. Here's the deal. You two, you two are going to go steal a donkey. You're going to go steal a donkey. Well, well, technically you're going to borrow a donkey, a baby one, one that's never been ridden. And when the owner asks, hey, why are you stealing my baby donkey? You're just going to say the Lord needs it. The Lord needs it. And it's all going to work out just fine. All right. Now, I'm sorry, friends, but if to me, if I'm one of those two disciples, this is a terrible assignment. If I'm one of those two poor disciples, I'm still like, Jesus, seriously, is this the best job you can give me today? My chances of getting arrested are approximately 100% on this errand. This is just a terrible plan. But the crazy thing is it works. It works exactly the way Jesus says. And we don't know exactly what happened. It's quite possible that this was an area that Jesus was just very, very well known because it was near Bethany. And he had recently raised Lazarus from the dead in that town. But however it worked out, it's clear Jesus is acting very intentionally. It's a very intentional move on the part of Jesus because on the one hand, it's a direct fulfillment of an ancient prophecy. Jesus is sending an unmistakable signal, relying on a very old story from the prophet Zechariah, where in chapter 9 the prophet says, Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey. Zechariah goes on to say how this new king would put an end to war and destroy the war-making powers and war-making technologies of the nations. So Jesus, riding into Jerusalem on the donkey, is saying, I'm that king. I'm that king, the one Zechariah spoke of. And this would send a very clear contrast to the crowd. Because while Jesus is arriving on a baby donkey from the east, Rome, Rome, the imperial ruling power also has its eyes on Jerusalem that day because of the Passover celebration. And within a day or two of Jesus' arrival, King Herod Antipas, the neighboring supervisor of Galilee, will be riding into Jerusalem from the north, and Pontius Pilate, the Roman prefect of Judea, will be riding in from the west, and both of them will be riding in on war horses with chariots and accompanied by thousands of Roman infantry, sending a clear signal to all of those gathering for the Passover, don't get any ideas. Have your quaint religious celebration, but don't forget who's in charge. And don't forget the power of Rome to crush you if anything should go awry. So the full military power of Rome riding in from the north and from the west, and Jesus, the new king of peace, riding on a baby donkey from the east. And the crowd loves it. They go crazy. They begin to chant an ancient hymn, a psalm, actually, and it's one they had all memorized as kids. And we see part of that psalm in verse 37. 
As he was now approaching the path down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the deeds of power that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Now here's the thing. This sounds like a nice psalm. Praising God and God's servants. Proclaiming peace. But the problem is, it's a political victory song. It comes from Psalm 118, and it talks about a day when Israel is surrounded by her enemies, and God will intervene, God will destroy the enemies, and send in a new righteous king. So, from a purely political perspective, if you had to prescribe what not to be doing as the Passover approaches, This would be it. Herod and Pilate are on their way with huge armies to make sure exactly this does not happen. And of course, all of this spikes fear in the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the religious elite. They're deeply concerned by all this raucous political speech. And in verse 39, some of the Pharisees in the crowd come up to Jesus and plead with him, teacher, tell your disciples to stop. Tell them to stop. Now, there's no real indication here that these Pharisees are particularly anti-Jesus, but they are very fearful of Rome and probably genuinely concerned for the people's safety. But they're also likely concerned with maintaining the status quo with Rome, keeping the same negotiated peace with the empire that afforded them, the Pharisees, a measure of religious and political power. So certainly they're operating with some very mixed motives here, not overtly anti-Jesus, but definitely wanting to preserve the status quo. But Jesus' reply is so bizarre. And I'm just gonna say, if what Jesus says next didn't give you pause when you read it this morning, you might've been in church too long. Because in verse 40, Jesus responds to the Pharisees, I tell you, if these were silent, if these people were silent, the stones would shout out. I tell you, if these people were silent, the stones would shout out. Like what? If the people are silent, the stones will shout out? I mean, that's some real Middle Earth type imagery there. I mean, to me, it sounds like something you'd be more likely to hear out of the mouth of Gandalf than, than Jesus you know, talking rocks and like animated nature. And you could build a whole sermon out of this exchange. But as I read it, I read it as Jesus saying, Pharisees, look, look, something is happening here that you cannot see. These people like you have all sorts of mixed motives as they chant these lines from the Psalms. Some of them think we're about to score a great political victory against the Romans. Some are just longing for a life of true peace and flourishing. But even if we commanded them to be quiet, there is something deeper and unstoppable that's happening here. These cries of the people are really just an echo of an even truer cry of the creation itself that has been longing for peace for thousands of years, longing for the end of oppression, longing for the end of the machineries of violence. 
And right then, there is another sudden shift in the passage. It's so abrupt, but also so profound, and it's actually the part of the passage that's always most deeply captured my attention. As Jesus gets closer to the city, and the image is that he's come over the Mount of Olives, and now he can see the city in front of him, Jesus suddenly breaks down and weeps. He breaks down and weeps and addresses Jerusalem directly, as a person almost, saying, Oh, Jerusalem, if you, even you, had only recognized on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. If you, only you, even you, had only recognized on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Now, this is very important because Jerusalem's very name means city of peace. Jerusalem or Jerusalem, city of peace. Shalem coming from Shalom. And it's a name, Shalem, for that city that actually extends way, way back in history, even before the Jewish people settled there. It goes back to its Egyptian and Canaanite roots. It was called the city of peace, Shalem, in a way that's deeper and older than even our biblical story, which is fascinating. But here, in this scene, Jesus, the prophesied king of peace, is directly saying to the city, named peace, you cannot see. You cannot see the things that make for peace. You've never really known peace, not true shalom, not wholeness. Jerusalem, you've known moments of not fighting, but they never last. And on this very day, Inside your city walls, you are oppressing the poor, even in your temple. And too many of you are insisting that your future happiness can only be found by a military victory against the Romans. You don't know peace, Jerusalem. You're living by a false name, Jerusalem. You're living by a false name, and it breaks my heart. If only you could see the path of peace I bring, then your name would be true. In fact, it wouldn't matter what your name was or what you said about yourself because people would see shalom breaking out inside your city walls, people flourishing, poor, empowered, and cared for, a resistance to violence instead of longing for a military victory. But instead today, you insist on the ways of oppression and violence, and this will eventually lead to your own destruction, Jerusalem. And in fact, it did. 35 years later, when the Romans responded to a Jewish military rebellion, and they decimated the city. But today for us, for you and me, it leads me to wonder what names we are living by. What names you and I are living by that are not true? I mean, are there possibly false names that we've taken on that need to be examined? False names that keep us from a deeper and necessary renovation of our life. I mean, we do it in all kinds of ways. We do it nationally, America. We call ourselves land of the free, land of opportunity. We pledge 
liberty and justice for all. We like to say sometimes we're a city on a hill, an example to the nations, but that's only at best true occasionally, sometimes. We take on false names individually. Like when we claim the moral high ground or claim a political or social position that might soothe our conscience and maybe signal some virtue to the world, but underneath it, we're not really prepared to do the deep personal work of change. And an honest evaluation of our lives show that we're really devoting most of our energies to securing our own position in society, like the Pharisees today, possibly. But there are also false names that others have placed on us that keep us from growing. I mean, perhaps a a family expectation or the clear expectation of your parents or sometimes even a partner or spouse that you live a certain life, that you pursue a certain vocation, that you build a family that looks a particular way, that you uphold a very specific way of being in the world, and those things just aren't true to you. The truth is we do this to ourselves, we do it to other people, and we do it in so many ways. We're so quick to name, to place labels on our sources of pride, our convictions and values, on our perceived threats. We name ourselves, we name others, and whether or not these names are true, they give us a sense of control over the world. I mean, just a sense of control over the world. But the problem is the names we take on confine our imaginations. They operate as a sort of fortress around our souls that dictates what new possibilities we will allow in, like the small ways we might be willing to change, and the many, many ways we are completely closed to being transformed. Jerusalem. The city named Peace was so sure it had a role to play in the world as God's city on a hill, as a beacon of renewal and hope for the world, that it had no imagination to even consider the possibility that it had become blind to true peace, or that it was in need of a great transformation, a great spiritual and social renovation. And so Jesus here, outside Jerusalem, weeping, Weeping and seeing the storm that's coming, seeing how God, the great renovator, wants to change Jerusalem's shape, change its story, and give it a true name. He cries out for the city. If only you, city of peace, could see the things that make for peace. If only you, city of peace, could see the things that make for peace. And I think Rilke is echoing the spirit of Jesus' lament here. So let's take one more look at the beholder. I can tell by the way the trees beat after so many dull days on my worried window panes that a storm is coming. And I hear the far off field say things I can't bear without a friend. I can't love without a sister. The storm, the shifter of shapes, you know, the great renovator drives on across the woods and across time, and the world looks as if it had no age. The landscape, like a line in the psalm book, is seriousness and weight and eternity. 
What we choose to fight is so tiny. What fights with us, what fights inside us is so great. If only we would let ourselves be dominated as things do, as nature does, by some immense storm, we would become strong too and not need names. When we win, it's with small things, and the triumph itself makes us small. What is extraordinary and eternal does not want to be bent by us. I mean the angel who appeared to the wrestlers of the Old Testament when the wrestler's sinews grew long like metal strings and the angel felt them under its fingers like chords of deep music. Whoever was beaten by the angel, who often simply declined the fight, went away proud and strengthened and great from that harsh hand that needed him as if to change his shape. Winning does not tempt that person. Winning does not tempt that person. This is how they grow by being defeated decisively by constantly greater beings. Jesus sees the storm that's coming, sees God as the great Umgestalter, the great renovator. And while Jerusalem is insistent on resisting the path of peace, Jesus heads directly into that storm to begin for Jerusalem and for us a new storyline of peace of shalom. Jesus goes on that journey alone, at least initially, and within a week, he goes to the cross. And even though he begins that journey alone, he invites us to follow, to follow him. He calls us by our true names, by our true names, not the ones we've adopted or the ones that have been placed on us by others. But he says to us, my child, my beloved, lay down your defenses and go with me on the path of peace. Walk with me on the pathways of surrender. Let this great storm do its work and find with me the true life, the resurrection that's waiting to happen on the other side. So this week ahead, we have our once a year opportunity to live out that journey with Jesus in a daily way, to gather around the commandment of love on Thursday, remembering the Last Supper, to meditate on the path of the cross on Friday, to experience the silence and the waiting for new life on Saturday, and to experience the celebration of resurrection on Easter Sunday. So let's go on that journey this week. Let's go as a people who are learning the pathways of peace, letting go of our false names, and trusting the great renovator to shape us and enable us to love this world well. Amen.